If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Philippians 4. Uh, as we look at our passage together, we've been in the book of Philippians now for several weeks, and, uh, and we're continuing on in Philippians 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one off of the rack in the back of the room. That is our gift to you. If you don't own one, you can take that home, but uh, I want you to follow along with us in God's Word so you can see that I'm not just making this stuff up, that this is what His Word says, and we believe it, and we, we hold it as true, and, and, and it is as if it's it is as if God is standing before us, speaking these things to us. This is how we read his word. And so last week we started in Philippians 4, or a few weeks ago we started in Philippians 4, and uh, last week we got into uh, a, a section of verses, and uh, within that section of verses we said that there are six exhortations that Paul is giving us. There's six things that he is wanting to communicate with us. And, and those thick, six things, I, I didn't give them in list form last week, but I'll, I'll go ahead and give them in list form so you kind of know where, we're, where we were, where we're going uh, today, and where we'll go next week as we wrap this up. But those six exhortations are to rejoice, to be gentle, don't worry, pray always, think about good things, and practice faith. Those are the six things as we read through and starting in verse 4, and we'll do that again in just a second. Those were the, the six things that Paul wanted us to see. And so far, as we've considered uh, rejoicing and being gentle. Those are the first of the, the six exhortations. And, and you remember last week, we, we looked at rejoicing, and we said that it is the Christian's duty to rejoice. And I gave a, a fabulous quote from Charles Spurgeon. In that quote, one of the things he says is how gracious, of God, uh, how gracious a God we serve who makes delight to be a duty. Rejoicing is to delight. And God has commanded us as believers to delight, to rejoice. And of all the things that God commands us, how wonderful is it that he tells us to be joyful, to rejoice. Imagine having the worst work day you can have and your boss coming to you and telling you to just rejoice and be happy that everything's okay. He'll take care of it. You'd probably kiss your boss, right? Like, that's God's command here, is to rejoice. And why do we rejoice? Why do we delight? Because you remember, we, we, we talked about joy as having that, that settled contentment, that everything that is important has already been covered by God, like he's got it. And so we don't need to worry about it because he has it. But then the second thing we looked at is be gentle, and, and I know I... I startled some last week, and I apologize for that, but, but I was hoping to get my point across that, that when Paul says to be gentle, that he, he's talking about the way in which we do life with one another. And you remember I said, like, the way we interact with people should be shrouded in gentleness and grace, that we can certainly, in communicating the gospel and in communicating to people, we can shout at them but it's not gentle. And even, and even in, in Paul's address here, he says 
Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. It is a character quality by which the church is to be marked by. And so if you have a a church body somewhere that likes to stand on street corners holding signs with offensive messages on them, but but then give a little Bible passage that, that they think they're pulling that from, and all they're doing is shouting and berating and belittling people in the name of Jesus, I think they're missing the point of being gentle. Their, their speech, their language, it's not seasoned in grace. And how are we gentle? Well, we remember a considerate courtesy for the, for the respect and the integrity of a person. Recognize we are all made in God's image. And because of that, we all require a certain level of respect. God did not make a mistake when he made us. We are uniquely and wonderfully made. And we should treat each other like it. And you remember last week I said we must not compromise gentleness for truth. Being gentle doesn't mean become a doormat and letting truth escape your wording. We, we cannot compromise on the truth of his word. And so we are gentle as we communicate it. And so we don't compromise gentleness for truth, but likewise, we don't compromise truth for gentleness. We don't compromise truth for gentleness. And so that was last week, looking at rejoicing and being gentle. This week, we're going to look at um, an idea that I think we all, at some point, can identify with, and yet there is so much here. Uh, as the Apostle Paul, it's funny, I said this a couple weeks ago, like, like chapter 4, Paul is winding down his letter. Like he's offering con- concluding thoughts, and, and yet he's not done. Like there's so much to pull out here. Um, so if you have your Bibles open, Philippians 4, we're going to read our whole section again, and then we'll get into the specific verses for this morning. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is Just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Will you pray with me this morning? God, I just ask that you would help us now as we've opened your word, as we look to it and we read it and we study it. God, reveal to us the truth that you would have us know this morning. God, I ask that you would transform us by the reading and studying of your word, that we're not just reading it because it's words on a page and it's the next part of our service, but that we would eagerly seek the truth that you have for us this morning. God, I pray that you would speak through me, 
God, use me for uh, this time. Let it be a time where we are um, uh, hearing from you. God, let nothing that I say be of my own words. God, let nothing that I say be um, of, of my own idea. Father, speak through me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing unto you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look in verse 6, our passage this morning, he says, Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. I think at some point in time, all of us have probably felt some sort of anxiety in our lives. I think at some point in time, we've all felt kind of that that inner turmoil happening within our hearts and our souls about, about what's going on and, and the circumstances of life, right? And, and Paul here commands us, he says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. That, that word in the Greek is the word merimna, and, and it means a, a dividing or a fracturing into pieces or parts. The, the word being anxious literally means to be divided and torn apart. And I found that really interesting that Paul would use that word in describing anxiety or, or the, the, the feeling of being anxious. And, and that word merimna in the Greek is the same word we use for worry. So if you, if you see the words worry or, or anxiety or anxious or, or fear sometimes in the Bible, that's that word. It's, it's, it's interchangeable. But it means dividing or fracturing into parts. And did you know, you probably did, that deep-rooted anxiety takes a very physical toll on the human body. It takes a very deep physical toll on, like I find this interesting, it means dividing into parts, to be divided or torn apart. Listen to some of the side effects that anxiety can hold on a person. You can have long-term memory loss or memory problems. You can develop a weakened immune system, leaving yourself vulnerable and and susceptible to other health issues. You can suffer painful and significant migraines frequently. You can develop fatigue. You can develop dizziness. You can develop breathing problems where you're not able to get enough air into your lungs You can develop heart problems, which would lead to further complications, such as heart attack or stroke. You can can develop upset stomach or nausea. You can have heart palpitations and increased blood pressure. You can have shaking or tremors. You can develop GI disorders, gastrointestinal disorders. You can have muscle aches and cramps and weakness where you're not even able to use your arms or your legs because of the strain that is being put on your muscles. But from what? You can literally and physically see that your body begins to fall apart because of the anxiety of your mind that is within you. 
I've had the unfortunate displeasure of experiencing some of these things. Back in 2016, um, on my wife's birthday, I woke up that morning and I felt okay. Wasn't necessarily worried about anything, nothing abnormal going on, but um, as I progressed throughout the day, I started to develop this tightness in my chest. I started to develop this, this um, sense of, of not sh- being sure of what's going on. And, and I had this, this kind of, um, it was almost like I drank too much coffee, you know, you kind of get jittery a little bit. And, and throughout the day, progressively, this tightness got more and more, and it became harder to breathe. It became harder to focus, and my work was affected. I ended up having to tell my boss I'm going home because I don't feel good. And, and as I got home, like, I felt my pulse was racing. My heart was beating outside my chest. I could hear and feel my heartbeat in my ears. I couldn't catch my breath, and I became dizzy. And I ended up calling a friend of mine who's a, a paramedic, and I said, Hey, what do I do? And he goes, Man, you need to relax. And I said, I'd love to, but I don't know how. And he said, try to lay down for a minute and close your eyes. And so I did that, but that just made it worse because I became then keenly aware of what was happening. And I know it's unusual. I was only late 20s at the time, but I thought I was having a heart attack. Like, I thought, is this what this feels like to have? Right, 20-year-olds don't have heart attacks, but, but I'm not the most in-shape guy. Maybe this is it. I'm like, what do I do? And so Bethany came home from work, and we had plans to go out to dinner to celebrate her birthday, and, and I told her, I said, baby, I, I got to go to the hospital. Like, I don't know what is going on, but I am, I feel like I'm dying here. And so we went to the emergency room, and, uh, and I learned that if you want to get in quickly to the ER, tell them you have chest pain, they'll get you right in. Um, and so I did, and they did an EKG, and my heart was fine. It was just beating way too fast, and, and my blood pressure was a slightly elevated, but I wasn't showing any signs of heart attack, and so I was safe there. But then they began to ask me questions about what's going on, and they asked, what do you do for a living? I, I said, I'm a pastor, and they go, oh. They said, well, what is your diet like? I said, it's not great, but it's not bad. I don't eat a ton of junk. I do drink a lot of coffee. And they said, oh. And they took me back, and they put me in a room, and they tried to draw blood to do some blood tests. And uh, I'll, I'll share that story with you another day. It was not fun. I don't do needles. Um, but they draw blood, and they do a test, and there's nothing wrong with me. But here, my heart is beating out of my chest. I can't breathe. It feels like an elephant is stomping on my ribcage. And I don't know what to do. And I begin to hyperventilate. And the the nurse says, sir, you've got to calm down. You're going to pass out on me. And so they gave me some medication. And they told me to lie back. And after about an hour, I had mellowed out. And I was fine. And I asked, what's wrong? They said, you're having a panic attack. You're anxious about something. I had no idea what I was anxious about. I really, even to this day, couldn't tell you what was going on in, my, in the deepest parts of my soul and my mind, but I, mean, I thought I was dying. It was tough. It was because I was anxious about something. And Jesus speaks to this in 
Matthew 6. He speaks about anxiety and being anxious. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will you not much will not will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." See, when when anxiety, I think, is present in our lives, it speaks volumes about what we presently believe about God. Anxiety present in our lives is is a theological position. When we are anxious about something, it's, it's showing our own personal theology about what we believe about God. And, and according to Jesus' words here, like when we're anxious about life, when we have anxiety in our lives, number one, it shows that we don't trust God to provide for us. Matthew 6, again, what, is, what are the things that he, that he says are, are pe- people typically anxious about? About food, about clothing, we get anxious about shelter, about our homes, about what, how things are orchestrated in our lives. We get anxious about our finances, where they're going to come from. Are we going to have enough? And when we're anxious, when we're worried about those things, like we're not trusting God to provide those things. Number two, we're anxious about God's timing or his will in our lives. Look in Matthew 6, 27. He says, which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Like when we're anxious about our lives and and the patterns of them and how they're going, are we accomplishing all that we've wanted to accomplish? Are we living life to the full like we've hoped to live it? Are we at, at the place in life that we wanted to be by this time? When we see others around us and their success and their circumstance and we go, gosh, why haven't I had that yet? We're not trusting God's will in our lives. We're not believing in his will for us, that he is working it out for our good as he says that he is. And the third thing we see when, when anxiety is in our lives, it's a, it's a theological posture by we're not presently seeking the Lord. 
Again, look in verse 33. He says, seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Not after Not when you've accomplished all that you hope to accomplish. Not when you've got a plan. Not when you've arrived at the the point in life that you want. Not when you feel settled or secure about things. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things will then be added to you. See, there's an order there. You don't... Have the the things that you desire until you're seeking the Lord. We'll get to that in a little bit. It's been true of my life that I feel most anxious about things when I'm not seeking the Lord. Like when I'm not pursuing Him, suddenly I start to become very aware of the, the realities of life. And God in his uh, providence has given me this kind of internal uh, system to do that. I I was diagnosed a few years ago with rosacea. It's uh, an inflammation of the skin on my face. And and, um, one of the triggers that I have is through stress and anxiety. And so if you ever see me and, and I have just a red blotchy face, chances are I've got something going on. It's a big telltale of, of I'm at that present moment stressed about something. And as, I, as I've come to deal with that, like it, it's helped me in a bit because I'm able to then ask, like I look at my face in the mirror and I see, gosh, you're red-faced. Sam, what's going on? What are you stressed about? The second question that I can ask is, where's the Lord? You're stressed. Where's God? Are you pursuing him? And so are you anxious today? Are you burdened? Are you overwhelmed with life? Do you feel like you can't take it much more? Are you falling apart internally or or externally, physically? Have you made the statement recently that, that my life is just a wreck right now? Can I ask you the question, where is the Lord? Where is he? Because if we seek first the kingdom of God, then all of these things will be added to us. Now, that doesn't mean that you just live loosely or irresponsibly, right? Living in the Lord, pursuing him, not being anxious, like that's not licensed to just live foolishly or carefree. I find it interesting that prior to this verse, Paul tells us to rejoice. We, we looked at this last week. I'm not going to rehash that at all. But, but as, you, as you read it, Paul's life in the book of Acts, like, do you think Paul had some things to be anxious about? Like, let me, let me give you the highlights. He was jailed multiple times. And he's currently writing this letter from prison. He's in jail right now at the present moment of writing this letter. And he knows that that end of life is certain. At some point, possibly very soon, Paul is going to die. But he's also been shipwrecked. 
He's been bitten by a snake. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been driven out of cities and places. He's been abandoned and left by his travel persons. He's had times, as we'll see in a few weeks, where he had zero idea where his next meal was coming from because there was no money there. Like Paul had some stuff in his life that understandably he could have said, gosh, be anxious like like I certainly have been. And yet he chooses to rejoice. He's trusting that God's got this, that he's in control, that this circumstance, whatever it is, whatever he's experiencing at the moment, like it's not caught God off surpri- uh, by surprise. It's not caught him off guard. So if we're experiencing anxiety more and more in our lives, it's a good indicator that we're not rejoicing in him. I remember again the definition that we used for rejoicing and for joy. It's a settled contentment that God's in control, that he's got this. It's having peace and knowing that God is sovereign and in control over all things. He says, don't worry. But then Paul puts a comma there. He says, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. And and our second uh, exhortation for today, really the fourth one that we see is pray Always, that's our second exhortation to consider. He says, don't worry, then he says, pray always. And Paul here puts this comma after his exhortation of don't be anxious. And and really these two ideas, don't worry and pray always, they're meant to be considered together. They go hand in hand because prayer, as we'll see and as we look at it, is the antidote for worry. It's the antidote for anxiety. It is what cures anxiety. But Paul here says, don't worry about anything. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? In verse 4, he says to rejoice always. And now here he's saying, don't worry about anything. You see how they're, they're a little bit similar? Like, we rejoice when? Always. We're anxious when? Never. About anything. And, he, and then he gives the reason why. He says, be anxious about nothing but in everything. So again, when? In everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I wonder if at this point, Paul puts his pen down and he closes his eyes for a second and he recalls his time in prison. Now again, remember like, Paul, if anybody has some reasons to be anxious, he's got some reason to, to be worried about some things. But, but I wonder if at this time, like he just pauses for a minute and he remembers this in Acts 16. It says, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, 
They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having revealed this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were fastened, unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried aloud with a voice, and with a loud voice, "Do not harm yourself, for we are here." And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, "Sirs, what must I do?" To be saved. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. I've never had to sit in a jail cell. Thankfully, I've not done anything in my life that would land me there, and I've never been publicly beaten for that matter. I've never been dragged into the street and stoned and and whipped and beaten with rods. I think for Paul, that's probably just another Tuesday. But, but, but I know some who, who have been in jail, unfortunately, for one circumstance or another. They have found themselves there. And I would guess that if you're ever in a setting where, where, where naturally anxiety would come upon you, it's probably in jail. It's probably there. And notice Paul's immediate response, what he does while he's there. In verse 25, Acts 16, 25, it says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. They were praying and singing hymns. His response is to first pray and then to worship. And I love the the sentence that follows there, and the prisoners We're listening to them. Has it ever struck you that in every situation of life, in every circumstance that you will walk through, you face an audience that is watching you? Now, you may not care. You may think, well, it's not about them. It's about me. It's my difficulty. It's my circumstance. It's my situation. And and that's true, right? It's not them or theirs necessarily. But look what happened in Paul's life as as people were watching and observing what is going on here. We see that that someone comes to know Jesus as a result of it because of the the decision he made and and the stature of life he had and not being anxious, but in praying and in worshiping, people came to know the Lord. See, Paul here used his circumstance as a way to point back to God and to glorify him. And that, friends, is being kingdom-minded. That's being uh, Jesus-centered in life. That's showing the changed heart that comes from receiving and knowing the power of the gospel. And there are constant opportunities Constant opportunities in life where we can show and we can prove the claim that we have about our faith, that we are trusting in Jesus and that we have given our lives to him. Again, you remember, we've said this all along, way back in Philippians chapter 1, that to live 
is Christ. That means in the good times, we glorify him. And in the bad times, in the hard seasons, when we're weighed down with anxiety, when we have things that we're wrestling with, praise God, give glory to him. But perhaps you say, well, I just don't know how to pray. Like, I, I hear you, Pastor, but, but I just don't know how to do that. Like, how do I, in the moment, pray to God? If I could borrow a, a phrase from, from Matt Chandler, he, he simply says, pray what you got. Like, there's no magic formula. There's no magic incantation to, to praying. There's not a, a set of, of words that are acceptable and un- unacceptable. The, the Lord doesn't hear you based on the, the phraseology that you offer. Like, just call out to him. Like, call upon his name. It doesn't have to be polished or well-spoken. It doesn't have to have a lot of theological depth. It just has to be real. It just has to be from the heart and tell God what's going on with you. Just pray the best you know how. But Paul does give us a, a specific formula here. He does give us some guidance in that. The first one he says is supplication. Look again there at verse 6. He says, in everything, by prayer and supplication. That Greek word supplication is the word deisis. It's the word deisis, and it, and it literally means a heartfelt petition arising out of deep personal need. A heartfelt petition ari- arising out of deep personal need. And I think there's one way that, that is often taught that we can understand this idea of supplication. And that's the, the idea of fasting. When you fast, what you are doing is you are withholding physical nourishment that would come from food and drink. You are withholding the physical nourishment from yourself so that you can have spiritual nourishment as you pray. When you fast, at any point where you would eat a meal, you should be praying. See, fasting is replacing the, what, is necess, uh, what is a necessity in your body for food with prayer. Instead of literal nourishment, it's spiritual nourishment. Understand, friends, like our greatest need, both spiritually and physically, is Jesus. That's our greatest need. And I get the circumstance might be tough. I get that life might be difficult. The storm you're going through might be huge. And you need Jesus. Because he is the only one with the power and the authority and the ability to see you through it. And that, uh, that is, it comes from this, this deep personal need that we should possess when we pray. Supplication is recognizing that, that above all things, God, I need you first. Seek first the kingdom of God. We recognize our ultimate need for Jesus. 
Not that the situation will be fixed or will go away. We don't pray like that at first. We recognize first our need for him. That's what he means when he says pray in supplication. But then the second thing he gives here is with thanksgiving. So we recognize our need for God. We recognize our need of him. And then we pray with thanksgiving. And then again, the Greek word here helps us know the significance. The Greek word for thanksgiving in this passage is the word eucharista. Eucharista. Literally meaning the giving of thanks for God's grace. There's a word that comes out of this. It's the word Eucharist. Is anybody familiar with the word Eucharist? It's not a a common word we use as Baptists. But the Eucharist is simply the Lord's Supper. It's a name for the Lord's Supper. It's used in in Catholic traditions and and, uh, Lutheran traditions and um, Anglican traditions and and others like it. But but it's the Lord's Supper. It's the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine, or or our case, grape juice. And it's to remember the broken body of Jesus for us and the blood that has been poured out to cover our sins. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's called the Eucharist, and it derives from this Greek word, eucharista, literally meaning the giving of thanks for God's grace. And see, friends, like just as a side note, like the Lord's Supper is a solemn one. When we take it together as the body of Christ, it is a solemn moment, but it is not a glib moment. Does that make sense? Do we see the, the difference between the two? Like it's solemn in that it's serious and we take it seriously, but we should not be sad or, or mournful when we take it. We should be Eucharista, thankful, rejoicing, glad, grateful. It should be an attitude of thanksgiving, recognizing the significance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross because without it, had he not done that, we are still lost. We are still guilty. We still receive for our sins the penalty and the payment that is due, which the Bible says is eternal spiritual death. But praise God, he didn't leave us there. He saved us, and we're thankful for that. Like, are we thankful for that? I hope so. Again, think back to Acts 16. When Paul and Silas are in prison, they pray and then they worship. They sing songs. And it seems strange, right? Like it seems strange that in the midst of a, an unbelievably difficult time, like that would be your first reaction. But for Paul and Silas, they recognize that that life is bigger than where they're presently at. That their chains, this unfortunate situation, it's it's temporary. And church, the same goes for us. Like, Like the difficulties we face, the things we might be going through presently, the seasons of life we find ourselves in, like they're temporary. They're temporary. Why? Let ourselves be anxious and and literally physically sick about it when there is something, no, not something, someone who is bigger 
and better out there that we can give our attention and affections to. Paul calls us to just call out to him and recognize the great need we have for him and then praise him for saving you and remember all along the way that God is in control. I want to take a a rabbit trail just for a second if you would allow me. And at the risk of sounding insensitive, and and hear me, like, like, please hear me. I love you. And whether you're here or you're watching or you'll watch this sometime later, like, I do not mean at all to sound insensitive to what's going on with the world today. I don't mean to diminish it. I don't mean to to make it any less than what it is. But I just feel compelled to share this with us this morning. There's a lot of people that have been locked away because of COVID happening in our world. There's a lot of church members that have not been in church. They've not fellowshiped with the body. They've not been a part of their congregations for a year and a half or more. And again, I'm not diminishing what's happened today. I know there have been lives lost, and we should mourn that. We should be burdened by that. That's not a good thing. And I know that people have been terribly sick because of this, this disease, this, this, this um, uh, virus that has gone around. But, but may I just offer a, a, a word of encouragement from the Scriptures for us this morning? In Isaiah 8, 11 through 13, the writer says this, For the Lord thus spoke, spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me to not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And then he offers us another word of encouragement in Isaiah 43. He says this, Thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. 
I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Anyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Friends, Scripture is so abundantly clear. We are not called to live in an attitude or a state of fear and anxiety. Paul tells us in Timothy uh, chapter 1, like, don't live in fear. He makes it as clear a command as you can. Don't live in fear. And if your life, if your life is marked by a deep-rooted anxiety and fear, and let's just be honest for a minute, it's a fear of the unknown because we cannot control any of it. It is out of our control. We don't have a single bit of it. But if your life is marked in this way, if you are shut in your home, refusing to participate in, in, in society, refusing to come out uh, and, and be a part of the congregation that you are called to, that you are called to love and called to be in, that is a theological position saying that you are not presently believing God's word and what he has promised it says. You're not trusting him. You're not holding fast to his authority and his sovereignty. And again, hear me, like, I'm not trying to dog anyone. I'm not trying to call anyone out. I'm not trying to diminish the, the seriousness that this illness has had on people, I'm simply saying God is still in control. He's still on his throne, even in the midst of COVID-19, and we are trusting in him. Why would we ever lock ourselves away and not lean into him and let him lead us and guide us? And as Paul says, should we die? We gain heaven, and that's better than COVID anyway. Like, why would we do this to ourselves? And again, it doesn't mean live without common sense. Like, wash your hands, people. Like, I find it amazing that's been such a push. Like, were people not washing their hands before? I don't, like, like, we live with common sense, but we also live in full obedience to the Lord. And as he has called us to live, and we don't let those who are not pursuing the Lord persuade us into that. Like, do you realize that those that are, that are calling us to live this way aren't walking with the Lord, and so they're calling us to live outside of what God has, has told us to do? Like, we're being led astray by non-believers, and, and, and unfortunately, church members are, are, are eating that up. Like, how damaging is that to your faith? Back, back to Philippians. I'm done with that trail. <clears throat> So what happens when we do this? What happens when we're like, okay, we, we've got some anxiety, we've got some fear, we've got some worry, there's some things going on that have some consequences, we know that, and, and we're worried about those things, but we're going to turn it over to God, we're going to take the antidote, we're going to start praying, we're going to start lifting it up to the Lord. What do we do with that? Verse 7. Verse 7. 
the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Remember Paul's audience that he's writing to? We talked about this week one. Paul is writing to a group of people who are retired Roman soldiers, that they had given their lives to uh, military service for the empire state of Rome. He's talking to former soldiers. He's, he's even probably reading, talking to the, the Roman guard who is who had put Paul in jail, like he is converted, he becomes a part of the Philippian church, he would have heard these words and recognized Paul's use of the word guard here is not a mistake. It's not an accident that he's using this word. He's used other military terms in the past. But think back to Acts 16. Like, Do you know why the jailer his first reaction in seeing the, the, the destruction of the, of the prison and assuming that the, the prisoners have escaped, his first reaction is to take his own life. Do you know why that is? Because in Roman military life, in the eyes of the state, he has failed at his job. He's failed to, to, to um, uh, hold his post. And in Roman, ter- in Roman military life, that is punishable by death. Had his superior officer found that out, he would have been put to death on the spot. And so he thinks in this time, like, I'll take some control over my circumstances. I'll just end it for myself so I don't have to face the humiliation and the shame of knowing that I've failed. See, if you fail at your job in that culture, you're not just fired, you're permanently relieved, if you know what I'm saying. So if you were placed to guard something as a Roman soldier, if you were, if you were posted somewhere where you are guarding, you did absolutely everything you possibly could to make sure that you executed your job. There is no margin or room for error because the penalty was too severe. Think back to the, the, the guards at the tomb of Jesus. When the stones rolled away and they see this brilliant, bright light and it causes them to, to faint for a second and then they kind of regain their consciousness and they run away, do they go turn themselves in to their superior officer? No. What do they do? They go to the chief priest's. And they cover it up. They say that the body was stolen. Because had Pontius Pilate found out, those guards' lives were done. Guarding something is a serious level of importance in that culture. And so for every military man hearing this letter, this would have jived with them Big time. Because look at what it says. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Recognize his peace standing guard of your heart 
will not fail. It won't get it wrong. It won't abandon its post. It will execute its job to the fullest extent, no matter what. And God's peace will hold you in your heart and in your mind and the truth that you have there in Christ Jesus. We simply need to pray and ask for it. That's what Paul is saying here. So maybe this morning, you've never trusted in the Lord. Maybe this morning, you're not presently walking with him. You've not given your heart and your mind over to him. You've not made the decision to repent and to turn from your sins. Like friends, your first anxiety, your first worry should be in that Because the Bible tells us that if that is true about your life, you face eternal punishment in a very real place called hell. Because see, there is a holy God whom we have offended with our sin. We have turned from him. We are pursuing this world, not pursuing him. And because he is holy and his justice is perfect, he has to punish Sin, it's, it's a part of his nature that sin cannot go unpunished. And Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of that sin, what we rightly deserve, is a spiritual death eternally separated from God in a very real place called hell. And the Bible tells us that we're all guilty of this. We've all done this. No one is without excuse. No one is... is um, excluded from this, not a single person, but God in his grace and in his mercy has made a way to save us. And through Jesus, who was God in the flesh, he comes down to earth to live among us a perfect and sinless life. He's the only one in all of human history who's ever done it. And he is led and crucified, murdered on a cross. And it is in that place, as his blood is being shed and he's being tormented and tortured, dying a slow and agonizing, painful death, that God pours out his wrath against all of the sin of all of mankind. And the Bible tells us that just three days of being dead and in a tomb, God raises Jesus back to life. In his own power, he comes back alive, which, by the way, doesn't happen. Like, dead people don't just reanimate and come to life again. But Jesus does it, showing his power and his authority over such a thing even as death. And he has told us in his word that if we believe in this amazing, incredible, redemptive work done for us, and we confess our sins before a holy and righteous God, and we begin to pursue Jesus with everything that we have, and we give our lives over to him, we can be saved from our sin fully, freely, and forever. And we can be rid of this fear and this anxiety of the unknown because what we now know has been made absolutely, 
crystal clear that this awesome God who has saved us is in control. And one day when this life passes, we will spend eternity with him. Why would you not want that? And so this morning I ask you, if you have not given your life to Jesus, how would you respond? How would you respond this morning? To live in a life of anxiety and worry and fear? Letting your sins burden you and weigh you down? Where one day they're going to lead you to a, a painful existence in eternity? Or would you confess that sin? Give your life to Jesus. Make him Lord of your life and see just how much Jesus is better. How would you respond? Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. God, there is there are moments in our lives where life can weigh heavy on us. We live in a fallen and broken world, God, fractured by our sin. And so, unfortunately, we do face things like COVID and cancer and death and loss and trials and circumstances, God, that, that weigh heavy on us and we aren't sure what's next. God, I pray that it would be true of every single person in this room that they would cast off the spirit of anxiety and of fear and that they would turn it all over to you, trusting in you, rejoicing in you with with supplication and thanksgiving, trading what they need physically for what they need spiritually. That is you. God, if there's someone here that has not done that ever in their life, if they're, they've walked through this life questioning or wondering, God, through the Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to them. Reveal their sin to them. Convict them of it and let them know that they face eternal punishment because of that sin, but that you have made a way. Father, we thank you for your grace. God, I thank you that you have loved us. We ask you to help us, to walk with us. God, that we would trust in you with all we have. God, that we would give everything over to you. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.